Just let me walk round you, Moriarty, my hat and my gloves. Neddy Seagoon, the famous size. Oh, lies, oh, lies, I tell you, I'm slipping. My pot belly's nearly gone. I mean, look, look, I, I can still touch my toes. <laughs> since we've actually tackled an actual goon show but i'm putting that right this week with my uh guest graham lindsay foot graham came along and we had a great conversation about uh the silver doubloons which is uh, the penultimate goon show really um it's the, the the last but one proper goon show that went out in 1960 i hope you enjoy the conversation and in the time-honored fashion uh, i began by asking graham how he came to the goon show Okay, right. I suppose my first, um, the time I actually noticed Spike Milligan, it was before I heard about the goons first. It was one night, I was about nine years old. He was on Saturday Night at the Mill, BBC television production. Mm. And, you know, this was on late, late every evening and every Saturday night. It was a great programme. The Dolvers have great guest stars. They'd have Kenny Ball and his Jasmine playing the music for it. And then this loon came on and, you know, I thought, what, what is this slightly shabby looking manic figure coming on? And, you know, the first thing he did was take a glass of water and start gargling with it, you know, reducing poor old Bob Langley, the interviewer, to hysterics. And mm. I thought, oh, okay, what, what is this? This is, this is a little bit dangerous. It's a little bit crazy. This. Um, so that was the first time I saw Spike. Now, the Goon Show, uh, the first time I can pinpoint it, October 1980. Um, I was at senior school, and a friend of mine had a cassette tape that he'd um, recorded, he borrowed his granddad's LP of Goon Show Classics Volume 5 and recorded The Treasure in the Lake and The Greenslade Story. Oh, excellent. Okay, that, this, was my, that, this was my in. Not a bad way to come in, I don't think. No. You know, but, but two both great shows. Now, this is October 80. Now, of course, by this point, you know, Peter Sellers had, you know, shuffled off his mortal coil three mm. or four months earlier, which mm. is, you know, a dreadful timing. So I thought, who's Peter Sellers? And then I started you know, finding out about the Pink Panther films and all that sort of thing. When you're 11 years old, you, you, you're kind of working in visual a little bit. But I was always very radio-ish. I'd been bought a, a radio for when I was like eight or nine years old or something like that for a Christmas present. And I was forever on it, finding funny things to listen to. And I'd missed all the Goon Show stuff that was report, repeated in the 70s. And then I heard this, this tape, and it just thought, oh, man alive, what is this manic <laughs> nonsense? Yeah. This is this is an entirely different universe. And I immediately, it clicked. Something in my head changed in October 1980, and I've never been quite right since. It's an awfully long time to be mad. Um, I knew that there was... You know, I used to get huge reams of computer paper that my mum used to bring home from work and write out the scripts. <laughs> and you think to yourself, you know, absolutely. I remember trying to write out the script for The Treasure in the Lake, you know, in, in a terrible biro. You know, my, my writing is atrocious. It looks like, you know, a spider doing the Charleston with a headache across the page. It's a nasty, <laughs> nasty, look, terrible thing. So I remember writing this out. And, you know, even, even the stuff that went wrong, uh, you know, when there was, you know, deviations from the script, you know, there's a wonderful moment early on in that, you know, when <laughs> Peter turns up as Norris Toof of Messrs. Mealpeel and Fodder, or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Yes, yes. Proof positive, sir, proof positive. You can't go a word against the hell, hell, hell. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, It's just a beautiful moment. And everybody falls about laughing. I thought, these guys, they've left the mistakes in. Mm. They've left the fun stuff in. Yeah, I loved it from that. That's just it. So that's that's where I came in and I started to go down to the local library and borrow LPs and, you know, bootleg them. 
can you record you know, the way that you the way that you do hmm. you know when there's when there's not a huge amount of internet around in 1980 um, <laughs> well I, I remember you just reminded me actually because cause, yeah because uh, where i grew up um the, the it was all the seasons were all topsy-turvy so the summertime yeah. was christmas time you know what i mean yeah yeah summer holidays yeah, yeah. were christmas and i remember um particularly the balmy is that the right word <sighs> Balmy will do. Balmy, Partic- yes. Particularly balmy, sort of, um, you know, early January, something like that, and uh, mm-hmm. had nothing to do. I was uh, fifteen years old. I was at home, and um, you know, my friends were probably out and about, you know, um, squiring the local women folk or whatever. I don't know, but you know, there was me um, at home uh, with a cassette player, and I was playing the Moon Show episode, <laughs> and I was what I was doing was I was typing out. The script so I, was, yeah. I would play like enough that i could remember and then yeah. and then pause it yes. type out <laughs> type out <laughs> the lines and it must have taken me i remember i remember that took me about um probably about half a day because there was yeah. no because it was an old-fashioned typewriter so if i got something wrong i had to take the page out and start start again do you, do you know what i mean you, you were so, such a perfectionist you know oh, i just even though know, i just I, I just I knew, scribbled things out on my my horrible scripts, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but I knew that nobody, even in my heart of hearts, even yeah, you know, I was yeah. I was I was lying to myself maybe, but I knew that <laughs> nobody was going to see this. Nobody was going to no. get anything out of this apart from me. What the hell yeah. was the purpose of it? But I enjoyed no. it immensely. Of course, yeah, it's it's that was it. You know, you immerse yourself in these things because, you know, the the crazy thing when you when you're that age, I didn't think. I, I, don't, I didn't think of what it looked like at the microphone in the Camden Theatre or the Paris Cinema or wherever else it might have been that they were doing this. I saw the characters in my head. Mm. Uh, you know, I didn't see the guys at the microphone with the, with the, with the scripts. Um, I saw what was going on. And, you know, of course, everybody has you know their ideas as to what Nady Seagoon looks like, and you know, and I just thought Harry Seacon, you know, because he was on the television all the time when I was a kid. Um, you know, and I thought to myself, you know, not funny. And then suddenly realised, actually, you are extremely funny. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. You visualise the characters in your head. But do you think, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying um, mm. that you do or you don't have an artistic bent, but do you think mm. that if you, you know, if you could draw, I don't know if you can yeah. or not, mm. do you think you could actually capture those, <laughs> those characters in your head on paper? Yes. Yeah? Of course. Um, yeah, I, I did back in the 90s um, on the occasions when Tim Leatherbarrow couldn't make a, a cartoon for whatever reason that week. I, I did a few for the magazine. Okay. Uh, so, you know, so including, I'm afraid, the one that we're talking about this evening. And, you know, I, I look at these scribblings and they're, they're awful. But, you know, they're, they're so <laughs> vaguely this... Ronald's, vaguely yeah. Ronald Serlesque, vaguely, you know, always with a gritty edge to them. Everything, you know, everything I draw is like, it's got a character. You know, if I try and draw a chair, it's... You know, peering back at me, you know, I think Gerard Hoffnung <laughs> said that once, you know, it's just sat there with its arms folded, looking cross. And that's, I suppose, I don't know whether it's a reflection of my own character or something. I don't know. I thought it was actually quite a cheery soul. Could be wrong. Um, but oh, so, so we, we have something in common then, because you've drawn, the, for, you've drawn for the GSPS magazine. Yeah. As yeah. I. Not, not much, not much. Not well, much. I, I did. I did back in um, yeah. 91, 92. Yeah. Uh, when I was, when I was a member, there we go. Yeah. So at last we meet, darling. <laughs> it's amazing though, isn't it? It's, it's because yeah. um, it's, during the course of doing this podcast, I've spoken to people and met people that yeah. I will have read their stuff or seen their stuff. And likewise, yeah. they'll, they'll have done the same through the you know, pages of the GSPS yeah. magazine. Well, this was it. You know, I, I joined, the mag- joined the society in 81. And uh, a little while later, I had a telephone call and I, was, I must have been 13, 14, mm. something like this by this point. And a telephone call at home one day <laughs> and a voice on the other end. You don't know who I am and it's better it stays that way. And I right. said, pardon? And he says, I've been watching you for some time. You're horrible, aren't you? And I said, who the hell is this? And I said, is that Graham? I said, yes! You know, completely affronted, hello. I'm Paul Geraghty, GSPS Northwest. How are you doing, mate? <laughs> and, and that was it. And he was the local rep for the Gunshow Society. And I got myself completely and utterly ensconced in it. We did our local conventions. We went up and down the country. We wrote scripts. We 
bonded as a bunch of lunatics, but but fun ones, and not the um, you know I represent the Croydon chapter, all hail type of goon show yeah, yeah, fan. Yeah. You know, no, we we were a bunch of nutters basically. You know, did you um because you're what you you four or five years older than me, I guess. Yeah, I'm 52. Okay, so so you'd have been um, so like you say you got into them when you were uh, pre-teen, but on the verge of teens. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Did absolutely. you? Did you try and sort of share this with your with your friends at school? And, and that's yeah, you're assuming I you're assuming I had friends. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit. Yeah, I said the original guy who lent me the take. That was cool. The coterie of lunatics, you know, three or four of us perhaps, who shared tapes and. Did stuff like this absolutely but you know as far as school is concerned it was a it was a fairly gray and august and stern sort of place that such things didn't occur if mm. you could at all avoid it so there we go different mm. different universe that was mm. Mm. move on move on okay but yes no i did i did have a few pals uh, that, I, that i did these things with but it was all gsps basically and you know writing our own scripts and and causing damage and destruction wherever we went up and down the country. I think we were banned from a couple of hotels. Uh, you know, sort of like a you know a, a mad ver- you know the goon show version of the Who. It's just going to be like, like Keith Moon of the, well, of the not GSPS. Absolutely. Well, not quite. No, I was one of the good boys, really. Honestly, <laughs> I promise you that. But even so, yeah. So that's, you, that's how we all got into it. Go ahead. Did you eventually collect all the tapes? All the? Did you get a copy of all the shows? I got to about 120. Yeah. Which wasn't bad going. Um, I've got all the vinyl. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got 78s and singles and EPs, the whole kit and caboodle, because I, I collect vinyl as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, And it was always the comedy stuff that nobody wanted that was always in the bargain bin here, there, and everywhere, you know, in the, in the various record shops that I used to go to. Mm. So, uh, um, yeah, I used to pick these up. So, yes, I've got a full run of them. But as far as tapes is concerned, yeah, I've got about 120, something like that, okay. which is as, as much as I could get at the time. I haven't heard every show. All um, right. Okay. Not, not by any means, you know, but um, a good two thirds of them, most definitely. I've, you know, I've got most of them from series five onwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah. Um, we were talking before we started recording, mm. and you. We we left on a bit of a cliffhanger because you just dropped into the conversation that you'd you'd met Spike. So tell me about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. It was again. It was through the GSPS a long, long time ago. Um, the secretary at the time wrote to me and said, basically, what we're doing is actually we're giving Spike and Sheila a meal at his favourite restaurant, which is the Tratu in Kensington. Hmm. And he said out of everybody in the gsps we've chosen you would you like to come along and i went man alive this is you know it's like 15 going on 16 years old you know country bumpkin from the northwest of england going to london to have dinner with spike yeah and that's exactly what we did uh you know we we all met met up at the Tratu uh, in in Kensington it's a lovely was a lovely restaurant I don't think it's still open now but it was his favorite because he was into his Italian food and stuff mm. and, and red wine um, he likes his oh, red wine oh oh mm. yes Chateau Chem 1945 that was his favorite <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and <laughs> I can even remember it now so um we, we were all sat there waiting in the reception area and Spike comes in and as soon as Spike comes in all the flashbulbs go off and he goes ah and walks straight out again comes back in about 10 minutes later wearing a pair of mickey mouse sunglasses that he's obviously bought from a local chemist <laughs> and all my chemists something like oh there he is and he sits down and he says well i suppose you were wondering why i sent for you <laughs> at that point and at that point the restaurant phone rings and he picks it up right hello this hello this is your local visiting madman have you an, have you an appointment you know, you think what's going to, and the entire evening was like that. I couldn't eat my food for laughing. He was absolutely on top form. It was a wonderful, wonderful night. So this is what, 1985. Um, yeah, so he was still, he was, he was still fairly in his, in his oh, heyday. God, God, yeah. I absolutely. It was, it was marvellous at the time. Um, and it's a, I, ooh, go on, I'll say it. I'm a musician some description and because of all the stuff that you do when you're a kid and you listen to the goon shows and all that you you pick up things and i learned how to play i'm walking backwards for christmas on the piano uh, and singing as well and i recorded it and i, and I lent this to you know, the secretary of this gsps at the time she says oh i'm going to play this as spike and i said don't play it to spike it's horrible 
God. And, and man alive, at the end of the meal, he'd had a couple of glasses and he was had a big smile on his face. <laughs> Tina comes up to him uh, with a tape recorder and says, have a listen to this. And he said, who is it? And she said, it's that young fella over there, string bean in a grey suit. <laughs> okay. And it was me playing, I'm walking backwards for Christmas, who's giggling all over his face all the way through it. And at the end of it, he puts the tape deck down and says, well, there's one thing, your arpeggios are better than Peter's. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's the sort of thing to turn a young man's head, isn't it? Oh, you could, Ain't that you, nice? You dine out on that story for the rest of your life. Well, it's now on, it's now on record, so anybody yes. who can listen to this uh, podcast can repeat it at any time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so hang, yeah, hang on, I, I, I want to know, know what um, level of bribery was involved that you managed to get yourself chosen to... None whatsoever. Completely no. out of the blue. Um, completely out of the blue. It was one of those things that um, was decided to give Spike and Shield a nice meal out, and ten random members of the GSPS were chosen. And right. that was it. And, and, and I did just happen to be one of them. Did he spend much time speaking to you specifically, or, or not? not particularly? No. Um, you know, he was, was chatting away throughout the meal. You know, Sheila was at the far end of the thing. I was kind of but one next to him, if you know what I mean. Right. Okay. Uh, and you know, we, we, we talked to random stuff nothing serious but he was funny he, he was yeah. he was in good he was in good humor and he was happy to be there that night so as a consequence whatever he said just you know it it, it made the place fall about in gales of laughter um there was somebody who turned up an old friend of his um who had been a stuntman on the film the ghost in the noonday sun oh right um, and he just happened to go past the hello spike whoa what are you doing sort of thing so he dragged up a chair and started chatting to him and stuff like that so it was it was a lovely evening that was that was the good spike yeah that was you know yeah. and we know that there's a bad spike and i had a very very brief moment of that many years later all right he turned up i think it was the last goon show convention he came to this was down in uh brighton yeah, 1997, and he was—he'd he, not been well. He'd been—you uh, know—he he was quite poorly in those days, and he'd been collected from his house in Dumb Woman Lane in Rye, uh, and brought all the way to Brighton. And right. the one thing he'd stipulated was that there cannot be—it cannot be a hire car. You know, it must be somebody's nice car that I come in for whatever reason. He just had it in his head. And the person who chauffeured him was a member of the GSPS and a splendid American gentleman mm. who borrowed a hire car to do it. So that put Spike on the back foot for a start off. He was, he was, he was crossed by this, you know, by the time he already got in the car, this is yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a hire car. And the gentleman who was from America nearly wiped him out. Um, and the entire car full of people by going around a roundabout the wrong way oh, at one point, forgetting he, was, forgetting he was in the UK. By the time that Spike arrived at this convention on the Saturday night, he was going to do us like a brief appearance, him and Sheila, and then they were going to go out for a meal with a couple of members of the GSPS. And by the time he got there, he had a face like thunder. Mm. And, you know, he's sort of like he came in, and you know, I was sort of like in the way, and he looked me up and down balefully and said, "No, just don't." <laughs> Walked past oh, me, right. and that was it. I thought to myself, "I, I put everything down to the fact that he was old and ill and cross and stuff like that, and things had not gone his way that day, and quite rightly so. He's he was entitled to be cross. I'll go back to 1985 and remember what he was like that night. Thank you very much." Uh, I take it you didn't oh. get to meet uh, Harry or, or or Mike. Met Harry at the Bournemouth Convention in '95. Very briefly, um, he was—he came in towards the end of the thing, said "Hello, folks," and was sat down and talked a little bit with Dennis Main Wilson, who was there. Oh uh, yeah. Shook his hand, and that was about the length of it. And he went, "Hello, goodbye," <laughs> and that was it. You know, <laughs> went went in a, <laughs> a flurry of raspberries, um, and that was it. Uh, right. But yes, very briefly, very briefly, Harry—he was—he was lovely. Yeah, you could tell he was lovely. He was happy to be there. I think he was looking around rather worried about the fact because I think if you actually look up some information about that that convention, um, Harry said you know somebody invited him along to it, and it was a, some journal or another. I can't even remember where I've seen this on the net. And he said, "Yes, of course I'll go to it, but I must warn you, they're all quite mad." And that was Harry's view of the GSPS members. Mm. 
<laughs> and I think he, he, was, he was slightly on his guard, but I think he he relaxed when he realised we were a fairly harmless bunch. Yeah, you know, and we weren't we weren't going to mob him. More 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 in awe, I think, more than anything else. So that's it. No, and I, I never met uh, Mike Bentine. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. Just 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 before we start talking about because you, you know you've, you've come on today, and there's a particular goon show that we're going to talk mm. about and focus on. Um, but you, you you mentioned the fact that um, you're you're something of a musician. Nice little lead in, you know, for, for one of the questions that I tend to ask people mm. first time round. Were you ever a music skipper? Ah, yeah. When you chop out the Max Geldray and Railington bits to get four shows on a C90. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. I was. And then I realised, um, actually, I've got a lot to say about Max and Ray um, about this. I can, I can launch in now in point of fact and say that, yes, I was a music skipper and my views on this have changed. Um, in the words of Lizzie Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, they are now quite the reverse. Ah. Um, yes, absolutely. I'm a, as I say, I'm a musician. I'm a, I'm a jazz musician. I play jazz mm. piano and jazz and jazz guitar. Um, I don't do it professionally anymore. I used to do it semi-professionally and stuff like this. Uh, but I can't anymore. You see, I'm married. So, um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I used to, used to gig with, you know, various, you know, small combos and stuff like this and do weddings and all that, which was good fun. Now, as far as Max and Ray is concerned, when I, I kind of grew up listening to that. I grew up in a very musical household. My dad was an operatic tenor. Oh. Uh, my mum was a, a, pian- a great pianist. Uh, my brother did a music degree, and he ended up as a music teacher and a composer and whatever else. And I was the black sheep who actually ended up selling the pianos uh, many years later. But I also did a little bit as well. And I got very heavily into jazz when I was about nine, ten years old. Again, formative mm. experiences, listening to things like Oscar Peterson mm. and uh, Django Reinhardt. Absolutely, those are my two, you know, big heroes. Okay. Well, they were at the time. In any case, um, so as far as Max and Ray is concerned, um, I used to listen to these, you know, Max Geldray's harmonica, and you think to yourself, "Oh, well, this is all very pleasant. It's like." Um, you know, 1950s test card music or something like that, but it's it's all right. And then you start to listen to it a little bit close and you think to yourself, actually, that that orchestration is a bit special. And, um, you know, Wally starts, sorry, dead, dead name, Angelo Morley, they get yeah. on. Mm. Um, um, the, the stuff that was written and arranged, and you listen to those now just from a, a musician's point of view, and you think to yourself, actually, this is great. This is Good. This is up there with you know with Basie and Neil Hefty and whoever else. And this is this is good stuff. And these are just little throwaway bits of music in the middle of a half-hour mm. BBC comedy show. You think how? Now Max Gilderay, of course, had all of the the Wally Stott style. Sorry, big pardon. Angelo Morley. Angelo, I'm just going to just stop there. I know people who knew Wally Stott. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. And ancient sax musicians from Wallington and stuff like this who actually worked with Stott back in the fifties. Uh-huh. Um, you know, not Poggy, of course, because he's long gone. You know, yeah. EO Pogson. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Rewind. I'll call him Wally Star for this for the for these purposes. Yes, sure. So okay, right back in. Um, yeah, as Wally Star's orchestrations are just marvelous. You've got this behind Max on every single occasion. Um, something big going on, and then you get the Ray Ellington Quartet. Sometimes you've got some stot going on in the background, some some wonderful orchestration, but mm. most mm. of the time it's just the quartet. Mm. And in the early days, you think to yourself, well, this is, again, it's a little bit cheesy. Some, you know, the, the second show I ever heard was the Greenslade story, and it's got jingle bells on it, and he's got him barking all over it. And you think to yourself, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, and you think, this is a, this is a bit naff, isn't it? Oh, yeah. right, whatever. You know, when I was getting into the Beatles and the Who at that point, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, you're rough, 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 well, please. And then, as, as time goes on, now, this is a, a thing about the, um, the timeline of the Lagoon Show. Things change, and his musicians change, and the type of music he changes. And we're talking about this show tonight, The Silver Doubloons. Mm. And he plays this can't be love and mm. you think okay mm. and you think he, he did it earlier on he's done it two or three times at least during the, mm. the run of the show mm-hmm. 
And on this occasion, you know, and it's just moves capilla because I feel so well. Okay, that's nice. I yeah, know it's it's a, a sh- it's from a, a show. I can't remember which one though. Hmm. And then this version that happens in series ten, number five, the nineteen sixties have arrived by this point, and things have started to change. And you can hear the musicians change. Now I've got a bit of a quest on here. If anybody knows who the lineup was of the Railington Quartet in '60, I'd be quite interested to hear this because I'm absolutely convinced that at this point the the double bass player was a guy called Pete McGurk. Who's nice. ever heard of Pete McGurk? Pete McGurk was eventually, very shortly afterwards, the bass player in the Dudley Moore Trio. Oh, okay. right. Okay, so we're starting to get the beginnings of a change in the stuff that Ray's doing, and it's becoming British jazz. It's not a, a, like a, a mock-up of something that's happening over in Hollywood or something like that. Yeah. We're starting to get the British jazz boom, you know, all the Tubby Hayes and the Ronnie Scotts and stuff like this, and things are starting to change. You can hear it. And you actually listen to that version of this Can't Be Love, and it's cracking. It's fabulous. You know, it's a great bit. You know, Pete McGurk, if indeed it is him, does a great bass solo, the stuff going on. I think Coleridge Good is still on guitar in those days, and there's a wonderful um, solo he does in it. And you think, okay, this is actually getting more like it. So yes, I, as I said in the in the words earlier on, my, my views about snipping music have changed massively. Fantastic. I'm sure, I'm, yeah. I, I'm sure that there possibly will be someone listening. Possibly someone yeah. like Mike Haskins, because he seems to know things like this. Who, right. who, who, will, who will, if not know it themselves, know where to go to find out. So, yeah, yeah if, anyone, if anyone knows the um, the quartet lineup in, in January 1960, please let us know. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm convinced it's Pete McGurk. I think he joined right at the end of the, of the run. Right. Anyway, and he's one of my all-time heroes, all, all-time musical heroes. Well, I'm, I'm also <sighs> I'm hoping to have... Um, uh, Lance, Lance Ellington on as a guest oh, yeah. in the future. Um, mm. So he, 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 he may, well, I'm sure he would probably know, wouldn't he, I guess? Um, more than likely. Well, yeah. one would hope so. You know, he'd, he'd know possibly okay. more than anybody. Okay. Actually, okay, talking so, goes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry for dominating the conversation. Yeah, it's um, fine. You're happy you have. You haven't at all. Unless so, you're going to snip all my good, all my good bits out and just have you, you just know, have me talking. Yakking. To the next, oh yes, absolutely. You know, and me back in the background going, oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> just on a loop. I'm just going to have that on a loop. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. There we go. <laughs> uh, so Graham, obviously, you you and I have been in conversation for a while in terms of we've uh, communicated via Twitter and social media and whatnot. Yeah. And and I invited you to, to come on and, and talk about a particular show that took your fancy or any show that took your fancy. Mm. And I'm, I'm glad you chose this one. I was a little bit surprised, um, but you chose the Silver Doubloons, which is yeah. is the penultimate goon show yeah. proper. So it's yeah. it's um, series ten, episode five. It's it's yeah. the one just before the last smoking seagull, which was the first show I ever heard, by the way. Oh right, okay. Um, yeah, I heard the last one first, and and, and it's and it holds a special place in my heart. I love that. I know yeah. some people think that you know that one's particularly sloppy, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I love it to bits because it was the first one I heard. Uh, yeah. So uh, silver doubloons. Uh, goes out broadcast 21st January 1960 Uh, by the way um, that's just five days before the film two-way stretch is released which is my all-time favorite black and white British Peter Sellers film hey no I can understand that it's a fine film it was on over Christmas wasn't it on 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 the box over here and I I, I enjoyed it immensely it's a good it's a good film. film most definitely yeah I guess you would say that the silver doubloons as as the, as with the last Smoky Seagull, there is definitely an end of end of term feel to it, isn't there? Um, <laughs> most most definitely, most definitely, <laughs> and you can tell that from the off. Um, right, this is. <laughs> I was one. I, I was lent this by a member of the GSPS, and the, the problem is that the, the the cassettes that he used to lend me sounded like they'd been recorded on wet string. Mm. And you know, they, you know, you know, he'd been cleaning his recording heads with sandpaper again, and uh, yeah. uh, as always, a consequence. You know, they were always a bit muffled and a bit goodness knows what else. And uh, I got this, and it, it starts off absolutely full blast, and then goes quiet, and then starts properly, and you can actually hear it okay from that point on. It was a rough recording. I 
at. Now that I've got a beautiful, lovely, pristine, you know, Ted Kendall restored version of it, you think to yourself, well, okay, what's going on? And it starts crazy. It just starts mad. Um, you know, I, I remember writing a long, long time ago that, you know, I thought that, you know, Roger Wilmot, um, Honestly, every time people mention Roger Wilmot, I think they should actually, you know, hear a chorus of people in the background saying it in reverential manner, you know, Roger Wilmot, <laughs> like that, you know, because such a person who knows about these things, I bought his companion a thousand years ago, but he say at the time that, you know, the, the quality of the writing yes. has gone down the pan by this point. And the quality of the plot, I can't argue with the plots, the thinnest of thin things, but that doesn't detract from the fact that this is a very, very funny show. Oh, it is. Um, in my opinion, in any case. In, good. I'm glad, I'm glad we agree on that, darling. That's fine. Well, here's, here's um, the thing. You know, here's the, the writing? Thing. Go on. I, I, I've not listened to this for 25 years, maybe. And I kind of just, I had it in my head that it was, it was one of those shows that was just, it was just um, all over the shop. And yeah. And it was okay, but that was that was it really. And then I re-listened to it for the purposes of doing this. And yeah. there's a there's a bunch of good stuff in this. And then, in fact, there's one line which we'll come oh. to. There's one line in particular which mm. I I still use today, um, or, or variations upon it, shall we say? Um, mm. And and, okay. and I'd forgotten it was in this show, but um, but. Uh, <laughs> But no, because because when the show begins, there's a, there's like a little preamble, isn't there? There's um, before yeah. before Greenslade makes his um, customary announcement, um, Milligan's addressing the audience. Anybody want to jump, folks? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That's how we got here. Oh, foul! <laughs> yeah, he's chatting. I can't quite work out what he says. You know, has anybody no. whatever it is? I can't remember what it is. No, no matter. Never mind. Okay, yeah. you know. It, but it's quite obviously, it doesn't matter the fact he, he doesn't actually care that the red light's on. No. At that point, you know, he's just chatting to the audience. He's saying, anybody got one of these? No, whatever it might be. <laughs> Did anybody come here? Did anybody come here in a cab tonight? Or whatever it is. Yeah. And then Wall comes in. This is the BBC and the colours cream. Oh, yes, well, the modern cream BBC. <laughs> How I used to love the days when it was brown. Brown! And brown is better. It doesn't show the dirt. And it just goes off with a series of almost non sequiturs. Mm. Um, and then there's an advert for lumps, mm. which that was it. I was I was lost by this point. <laughs> there's all sorts of things happening at this point. You know, Peter Sellers is driven off in a car. And you can hear an ancient car with a horn <laughs> parping away for no apparent reason. It's just there, and it sounds funny, and that's great. Yes. But yes, no, the the advert for lumps. You know, put your head on this anvil. Oh no, whatever it is, you know clang ouch now you know um you can hear there's the last goon show of all coming in here he's reused a little bit of you know not being bashed with metallic object mm. you know that mm. is the difference between margarine and the last goon show of all. And that's there's little right bits of yeah. the last goon show of all in here yeah. this is in here there's a piano there's a piano tuning section in here there is and that appears a little bit in the last goon show of all uh, as well yeah. so now do you think, think... Do you think that he just hmm. um, in 1972 he just had uh, the script like at the at, you know it is finally cabinet he just pulled it out thought all right I'll take a bit of that bit of that you know yeah grabbed sort of bits Poss from different scripts yeah yeah that's right there's there's possible bits of that flying around here I think but anyway so yes it the the plot does start eventually and we've got some great moments of you know. Um, fluffs and breakups and whatever else mm. um peter can't get his lines out at one point when he's doing wolfage you know he just can't get his words out <laughs> and spike shouts keep keep going <laughs> at, one, at one point actually just before that there's there's yeah you can distinctly hear something that doesn't get necessarily the reaction that spike hoped from the audience and you can hear him muttering it went better in the rehearsal. That was yes. The um, what's what's the little woman's name? I call her simply Swanny Whistle. That's right. Pop, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And Poggy Poggy sets it to the tune of Pop Goes the Weasel, and the cast break up a bit. Yeah, it went better at rehearsal. Next aspect, and that just carries on. Yeah. Men of Wales, how's that all Welsh marriage? Oh me, <laughs> me and the little woman are very happy indeed, aren't we, love? Hi, big good lovely, my darling. The little fat legs, your lovely little chubby chops, you're beautiful with it, you see. <laughs> Do 
tell me what's the little no no what's the little woman's name? Ha <laughs> ha hey, I call her simply <laughs> What a tune that would make. <laughs> Thank you. Went <laughs> better at rehearsal. Next dance, please. And your line though. I don't think Spike Mac minds particularly that things aren't going particularly well because you can hear them enjoying this. Mm. You know. Mm. Um and the and the audience are lapping it up. Do you, do, you, do you think do you suspect that there's a bit of of sadness that you know they 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 know that this is the the last but one show that they're going to do together? From Spike's viewpoint, it's probably relief. Mm. You know, uh, this is it. You know, the, the the last series is six shows long. You know, that's it. It finishes at ten six, and I know that there were more scripts written for mm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you ask yourself, when was that decision made to actually just make it a series of six? You know, just before they started the beginning of the, the series. A little while beforehand because if there were scripts to continue from you know number seven onwards or whatever else why weren't they used and i think spike had just had enough mm. by this point everybody was going in different stages you know peter sellers of course was about to stretch it two ways mm. um <laughs> harry had done you know harry had done david he was about you know pickwick was on the way and all stuff you know and, you know harry had re- had, had his voice rechanged by uh the, you know, the, the, the great um Veroli, I think it was Veroni. I can't remember the name. Yeah. So he was actually, you know, doing his broadcasting and you know and recording career by this point. And I think Spike had had enough. Certainly, they, they'd recognised it. The sixties were on the way, as I said earlier on, as far as the music was concerned. Mm. Um, you know, and things were changing. And had the Goon Show continued, the other half of the series, it might not have gone out on. I mean, it's the last Smoking Sea Goon isn't a great high, but it's still not a bad show I, mm. I, I know you're i know you're very fond of it mm. i'm very fond of it for some of the one-liners in it you know the, the use of you know the scene one the shareholders meeting of gascot tobacco company mm. you know bbc fx seven men coughing but yeah sorry let's go back a show um yeah this one that's so you've got all of this crazy preamble you know and then at last we get to a plot you know a, a lonely sussex fishing village in cornwall um and, and sellers sellers doing his bernard miles that's lovely oh and he, you can tell he's enjoying it the brown cave we call it oh it's just somewhere in the cliff face overlooking the sea marine of beauty ah! it's an old smuggler's cave in white hair on a dark night, they do say a ghostly voice. Ghostly voice, ah! I'm squinting up the side. The smell of ghostly cooking, ah! Excuse me, I've got to get back to the Mermaid Theatre now. Taxi! You know, it's... I mean, Bernard was a... What was the show he was in? Rent Collectors, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Bernard Miles, yes, he was in the Rent Collectors. That's right. Um, yeah. um, shame he didn't do more, but uh, even well, it was it was Sorry. he was in the rent collectors, but all all but very briefly. Uh, it was it was just yes, one the hanging judge in that, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, it was fine. Uh, but no, he was he was friends with his friends with Spike. I mean, that's that's lovely. But uh, I mean, thankfully, we even better. We've got got a great guest star later on in this one. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, is he a guest star by this point? Is he not got his own key <laughs> to the Camden Theatre because he's, <laughs> he's such a regular? <laughs> Might well be the case. May well be. Um, Any uh, case, I, I was, I was listen, listening to this and the bit with Sellers doing Bernard Miles, or, or just the, that whole sort mm. of tavern scene, and 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 the fact yeah. that it's this fishing village in Cornwall. And then, obviously, with who's to come in terms of the special guest, as you say, it, there's an air of yeah. um, it reminded me of the spectre of Tintagel, and and it's almost mm. like a companion piece to that show. Yeah, in some ways. I can, yeah, I can see that. It's a long time since I've listened to Tintagel, but yes, I know what you mean. We have uh, Moriarty and Gritpipe, and uh, <laughs> who who, as I, I keep saying. Um, the late period Moriarty and Grip Pipe, my favourite period mm. Moriarty and Grip Pipe, when they're when they're completely abject, wretched, and good. This is your favourite era for them, is it? Yes. Please say yes. 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 
Good, excellent. Mine too. Mm. Uh, this is true. You know, Wilmot says you know wonderful things about this. You know, he is the batter pudding hurler, and then you know he's starting to go ow in series six, <laughs> and then talking about money, and by the end of it, it's like Call of the West. Now, which of all these fish bones is you? Yeah. I'm the one with hairs on. You know, it's like um, it's wonderful to hear. What is that excruciating brew you're sipping with that boot, Mariotti? Taste, taste! Gad, what is it? Your laundry! And there's, and at this point, there is a line which is completely ignored by the audience, and I love it. Hey, what's for afters? She hasn't arrived yet. Ah, a meal fit for a king. <laughs> yeah, well, Sellers always sings it. Sellers says, hey, what's for afters? Yes, he does. Hey, what's for afters? She hasn't arrived yet. Yes, I can hear that. <laughs> yeah, so, any case, Ned arrives. Bless him. Ah, you're Neddy Seguin, the famous size. There's the line. Isn't that lovely? You know, just, there's so many crazy little lines in this like that. Well, the, now listen, the version that you've listened yeah. to, does it have, because yeah. I listened to the fully restored version oh. on the Goon Show compendium, and it had several bits that I had not heard before, which had been um, uh. cut out of the, you know, the, the edited version that you, you would have probably yeah. had a copy of from the GSPS back in the day. Um, <laughs> and and there's and I was listening to it the other day, and Grip Pipe, you know, remarks upon Neddy's girth, and then he and then he mm. then he walks around him. He puts his I think he puts <laughs> oh, his boots okay. on and walks around him, and it's an extended sequence of. <laughs> I'll play the clip, and there's a couple of points in this show where Seagoon is is desperately defending the fact that he's lost weight. Yeah. <laughs> or oh, insisting. Yes. I can still touch my toes. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, the old yeah trouser splitting moment. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, but as I discussed on a previous show, a recent show, uh, yeah, with um, Sean Gaffney, we were talking about nineteen eighty five, yeah, and and Sean said, so how how big was Harry then? And I said, and I and I'm saying his his weight because I've seen him in Davy and I've seen him you know uh, pictures yeah. of him and whatnot. And I was thinking, well, he, he wasn't that big. And, and he probably wasn't no. that much bigger than Sellers a lot of the time. Well, that's right. If you look at the photographs of him in 53, 54, something like that, you know, and, you know, Peter's giving Harry a, a good run for his money in mm. girth. Mm. Most definitely, you know, he, it's what the thing you, you see, I'm just a fat, jolly boy, is what Peter used to say about himself. You know, reinventing himself in the 1960s, you know, into this, you know, suave debonair, you know, he had his teeth done and his eyes done, goodness knows what else he had done. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that was it, and he, he turned into, you know, splendid sellers at that point. But yes, and then Harry just sort of like carried on piling it on from that point onwards. But uh, no, he wasn't massive. You know, you look at the photograph of them on the front of, oh, I don't know, the, the Best of the Goons LP from mm. 59, you know, the mm. Dishonored again and Tales of Old Dartmoor one. And yes, he's he's got a big cricketing jumper on, he looks quite jolly, but, you know, mm. he's... You know, he's not he's not being towed beyond the three mile limit and sunk with heavy ordnance stage by that point you know <laughs> no he's not he's not uh, i don't know willoughby goddard oh, level you're talking you're talking about fabulous little villages i used to stay in no 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 in which mean yes, willoughby goddard it's, it's up in the north west <laughs> anyway. it's, it's, it's on the moors no i i know these people yeah of course um Absolutely. Robert Morley is what Robert Eric Morecambe said about him. You know, everything wobbled when he smiled. So. <laughs> I saw a film. I saw a film with Robert Morley because I don't like Robert Morley. I, I, oh, okay. I, I'm not ashamed to say it. I'll, I'll just come straight out with it. I, I don't like okay. Robert Morley. I find Robert Morley, whenever he turns up in a film, I, I switch off. Well, I just mentally switch. I just say, oh, God, okay. All right. know, get over it. Uh, get over yourself. Um, <laughs> I was watching just the other night. Coincidentally, I was watching the film Cromwell, which is a very fine film. In many ways, it is. with Richard I've got Harris, a DVD of that. yeah, yeah, and you've got and you've got um, you've got Charles Gray, and Charles Gray is wonderful, isn't he? Charles Gray mm, with that sort of supercilious sort of curl of the lip, um, mm -hmm. but but all his every scene that he's got, he's got bloody Robert Morley with him, <laughs> and it just completely ruined it. It took me out of it completely. But, but uh, looking but, looking like a completely affronted egg. <laughs> That's great, yeah. I saw a film with Robert Morley in, and it was it was um, 
it was based on the Agatha Christie Poirot novel, uh, The ABC Murders, and it was from 64, right. 65. And it had, mm. <laughs> believe it or not, it had Tony Randall as okay. Hercule yeah. Poirot. Okay. Oh, hell. <laughs> Steady. Yeah. Um, but Robert Morley was in it. And there's a scene, I swear to God, where Robert Morley is coming out. I think he's come out of a sauna and he's got a towel wrapped around his lower portions and the towel drops. Now, you don't see anything, but. Mm, good. <laughs> but I was just, all oh, right, you know. Yeah, uh, that's in, you know, I, was, I threw a beer bottle at the television. Enough of this. <laughs> Yes, didn't he? I can't remember. Never mind. I, I, I seem to remember him in, in the House of Wax coming to a sticky end as well, which was quite amusing. Anyway, oh, was it? Was he in? Um, he was in Theatre of Blood. Now, was he the Theatre, one? That, that's the one. Was, yes, did he, he get? In, did he drown in wine or something? No, no, he had to eat his dogs. That's right. <laughs> I know right. it's, it's, it's a sort of grand guignol yeah. things that they did in in Hammer in those days. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, I'm, so, I'm sorry to, to derail the yeah. conversation with yeah, Robert yeah, Morley yeah, hate. Fine. Okay, um, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. So, any case, yeah. No, Harry wasn't that huge. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the plot is: so Harry comes comes uh, for, for 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 reasons. Harry knocks on the door. Moriarty and Grip Piper eating the laundry. And mm. he's he says I want I want to borrow a shovel because I've heard that during the Yamada, uh, a Spanish galleon went down off Brown Cove. Brown Cove, yes, everything's brown. <laughs> <laughs> and at low tide, you can dig for silver Spanish doubloons. And at that That's moment, bad. the word silver, yes. it's like um, trigger word <laughs> for Moriarty. <laughs> I know it's just this wonderful, superb sound effect of a stereophonic Moriarty freaking out. It just it's wonderful, and it just like slows down to a crunch at the end, you know. It, it, hearing this lovely audio painting that just makes me wonder how much the FX guys really could have done if they'd have progressed mm. further into the age of synthesizers and sampling and stuff. Yeah. And you think, what on earth could have gone on? I remember <laughs> years and years later, a, a lovely radio program called Inside Sasha um, that Dirk Maggs um, produced. Uh -huh. Nicola McAuliffe was in it, and they had crazy effects in this which were very goonish. And one of them, one of my favourite one, which just sticks in my head, is the sound of a human, a pair of human hairs climbing up a wall. <laughs> and, and and basically, he just get you know a, a rag on a mirror and go <laughs> like that. <laughs> this this is the sound, and you think even even in what ninety one or ninety two, whenever that was broadcast, you know they're still using old school stuff. But one wonders. I mean, these these guys on the panel. They knew what they were doing. You know, mm. they, you know, was it um, Harry Morris who was on Grams in those days? Um, Ian Cook, Brian Lilly, and Harry. Yeah. Ian yeah. Cook. Yeah, he was Grams, yeah. wasn't he? Um, yeah, he should have been. He should have been made Surian for it. It was fabulous for the work that he did on this. Show. Wasn't uh, was John? Wasn't John Browell? Uh, yes. Effects man at one point. Early on, mm. absolutely. Yes, he was. Um, and so was a guy called John P. Hamilton, who ended up. Um, as a producer for, you know, um, I think it was ATV or Thames, I can't remember which one. And he used to produce Tommy Cooper. But oh. if you ever watch the 1968 Tales of Men's Shirts, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the mm. Thames one, he's the man with the bowler hat on the effects. Same. Oh, right. Yeah, John P. I met him once at a convention. He's, he's long gone now, I'm afraid, but he was a lovely bloke. And uh, yes, no, he was on, he was on the, the effects for The Goon Show in the early days as well. But yeah, he, he carried on with the carried on with them. You um, kept in contact with them for an awfully long time. I, I love the way that even to, even to the end. I mean, it was ever thus. Mm. But Grip Pipe Thin is playing upon the gullibility of Seagoon yeah, and the credulity of, of, of Seagoon. And uh, Moriarty's got um, uh, what's he suddenly suffering from the Irish crut? No, no. Um, on this occasion, he's suffering from a bank overdraft statement. <laughs> on this occasion, yeah, this is the only thing that can. Help him is a, a teaspoon of silver doubloons four three <laughs> times a day down his unwilling wallet. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah, yes. Which is great. <laughs> Ned hastens off to and spends the next what three weeks digging up doubloons to save the French right. prince, as he calls them. Um Indeed. now there's a bit that's cut out of the editor version, um right. where the Mr. Lalakaka and Mr. Banerjee turn up oh, right. looking for a tiger. 
Okay. <laughs> As I said, I've got I've got a, a BBC transcription service version of this, you know, yeah. which is about about four minutes long, I think, in comparison with what you're telling me. Um, I must <laughs> I must avail myself of extra bits, whether they're necessary or not. No, we understand the reasons why Lokaka and Banerjee were taken out. Mm. So mm-hmm. it is. It, it, but you can say, you know, well, did it progress the plot? Well, no, it didn't. The answer, the, well, nothing progresses the plot in this show. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> there, there is a plot. How's that the great thing that Wilmot said? You know, um, was it uh, Eric Sykes's shows? I think have a beginning, a middle, and an end, whereas Spikes just have a middle. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so me- yes. Meanwhile, Thin and Moriarty are living high on the hog in uh, mm. in Paris at the um, the Yumka Yumka Yumka. How do you spell it? YMCA. And he's he's exhausted. The snow lay three feet on his feet. Yes, I I seem to remember they they offer him a, a holiday, don't they? Yeah, well, of... and this is the bit where because because Seagun is staying at Bloodnox Flats, mm. and then and then we, then we have for the first and only time, yes, to my knowledge, the Bloodnox yep. theme that doesn't herald a Bloodnox scene. Absolutely, straight into Min and Henry. It's bizarre. Reason. It's odd. It is odd. You know, you don't mm. expect it. And that's, you know, I thought to myself, was something cut out? Um, well, I on, thought on that as occasion, well, but yeah. no. No. On this occasion, it's straight to Min and Henry and the piano tuning bit. Uh, and one of those wonderful circular conversations that they have. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, as I said, you know, Milligan obviously lifted this bit for the last gun show of all. Um, I think, in my opinion, you know, there's, there's no chickens this time, or chicken duck cats, but the sheep sound effects, you know, the the, play, the, the piano was wool to keep wool to keep the tune warm. Um, <laughs> well, and we've got Seekham doing essaying his what I think is his old Uncle Oscar voice. Yeah, he's, Mr. He's, Prune, or whatever Mr. his face is called. Mr. Isn't Prune, it? the piano tuner. Good, good spot effects on that one of him falling to bits. <laughs> <laughs> remember, just before he even says a word, thud crunch, you know, just falls to pieces. <laughs> the breakdown in communication between the whole lot of them has just been threatened for years, and it's now total. You know, you know, we, you know, we. I thought our piano was stolen. What stolen? <laughs> that that my 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 late father he, he loved this show. Oh, did he? Um, right. Yeah, absolutely. And he he didn't listen to many goon shows. It was always stuff like that that just caught him on the funny bone. And it just Spike going Sterling <laughs> for no apparent reason. Just while we're at this little juncture, um, yeah. Do do you have a favourite character or or pairing, if you know what I mean? It's not Blue Bottle and Eccles. Okay. It's probably, yeah, it's probably Min and Henry, I think. I think nice. it has to be. Just, just because I, I find that level of amusing decrepitude just just irresistible. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, absolutely, yeah, I think it's got to have to be Min and Hen. I, I mm. think basically because of the terrible logic problems that they give themselves for no <laughs> apparent reason. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, but I, I think the... <laughs> the, the lack the lack of communication with him, I think that's fun. I love the fact uh, that Min is that sort of um, terrified older lady in the 1950s <clears throat> who reads the news of the yeah. world and thinks that there's sex maniacs everywhere. <laughs> While trying to embrace youth culture and getting into things like rock and roll <laughs> and, <laughs> you <Yes>. know. <laughs> It's it's a truly terrifying thought process that is. It really is, you know. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, the, the trendy men. Yeah, women. She has a hinterland for sure, doesn't she? That we um, we never oh, fully we never fully yeah. uh, privy to. But there is there is something back in the no. back in the day with with Dennis Bloodnall. Um, well, the darling of Roper's light horse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and we we have the scene where so yeah so for for whatever reason just to to move the story on. Bloodnock tells Ned that Grip Pipe is paying for him to have a holiday uh, yep. on, the, on the seventh floor of these flats. <laughs> Away from it all, <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, he lives lives in the basement, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so, so they get in, you know, what's this, a ticket? You know, it's for the lift. You're going away to the seventh floor away from it all, lad. Get folks, fancy a free trip to the seventh floor by a first-class lift. What are you going for? The seventh floor. Oh. 
Penelope and I went there last year, didn't we, dear? Yes, Lord. Travelers was full of people from the basement, wasn't it, dear? Yes, Lord. Is this the little woman? Yes, he's two foot six. <laughs> Take the seat for first Sidney McCorvey. Come on, Penelope, darling. And all kinds of stewed fruits and mutton. You like, like a bit of stewed fruit and mutton? No, thank you. <laughs> I brought the lunch with me, yes. Yes. Yeah, what about it? Now, I got your ticket, mate. Oh, God. Now, yeah, yeah, we, it's here. It ain't it, this ain't it. It says your weight is 19 stone 3 pounds. Give me that! It's all lies, I tell you. I'm slimming, I tell you. I, I've, I've never been so light in my life. Ground floor again. <laughs> It wasn't till I tell you I'm as light as a feather. I... And they crash to the ground floor. You know, it's all lies, I tell you. I'm, and then, so you've got one crash. And the, the FX guys have gone into overdrive here again. It's beautiful. You get one crash of the, the lift coming down to the ground floor and then you get a second one where it goes down to the basement and it's an even more cataclysmic stuff you know <laughs> scaffolding coming out and harry's screaming his head off <laughs> it's they've used two different crashes for the lift coming down in two different places it's beautiful to listen to great fun and, and i said i said i said earlier that there's a line that i still use to this day there's actually two i've just realized there's two go on uh and one of them is have you had nice weather or haven't you washed which is <laughs> <laughs> which I've, I've used variations <laughs> on that over the years. Yeah. Uh, but we must come, we must come to, we must come to um, the, uh, the guest uh, appearance. Mm. Um, it's quite yeah. late on. It's after Ray's number. And I've, I, I can't, I've lost count of how many times Valentine Dial has turned up mm. in goon shows. Yeah. Uh, it, but, it's quite a few. Yeah. It's quite a few. Uh, and even from the early days onwards, wasn't it? Did he appear yeah. in series three and stuff like that when Spike was poorly and stuff? Yeah. Again, I'm not quite sure why, but Seagoon is in a stagecoach traveling along well, the King's Highway. Yeah, um, Great Pipers have arranged a two part holiday. You know, the first part is to the seventh floor. The se this is the second part of his lovely holiday that he's having. <laughs> you know, he's being, being driven goodness knows where, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, the party halts, you know, in this horse-drawn carriage when, when one of the horses gets a puncture and it's Eccles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, that was a funny thing. Before the break, before Ray Ellington's break, they were ducks. They were yes. ducks at the gallop. They they've turned into they've turned into horses for some... <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand anymore. I'll tell you what it will be. I guarantee this will be what it is. Spike's written ducks. Yeah. And then he's written a couple of other sentences and just assumed it was horses. Yeah. and carries on with the big horses yeah but yeah so they stop outside this old manor and we've got we've got the appearance of count valentine dial yeah and and this is the bit this is the sequence that um has a line that i absolutely love and it's straight out of the marx brothers i didn't like this man i don't like him either oh, i don't like him too. how do you think i feel i happen to be him <laughs> <laughs> That's pure Groucho, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it's a great line. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, and I've used that uh, in contexts which I can't give you right now, but I, I have used that <laughs> over the years. <laughs> lovely, lovely. I mean, the, the fact that they're trying to seek shelter in this, you know, Valentine's that is an absolute sinister best through this. You know, it's, there's a pre-recorded laugh they use at this point. Which yes. just goes on about four or five cackles further than it should and just tips <laughs> into hilarity, you know. <laughs> it's like all the way down there. They don't write tunes like that anymore. It's, it's silly, silly stuff. We have the um, the uh, obligatory bad pun. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yes. <laughs> My name is Count Valentine Dial. I have one boy. That must be your son, Dial. <laughs> He'd been saving that up for years, hadn't he? You can see that one. Yes. Never mind. Eccles tries, Eccles tries to be friendly and he's worryingly met by Dial's Gad, what a beautiful woman. It's, you know, you think she's got away from me. It's, it's wonderful. There's so much stuff in this. You know, you think to yourself, okay, this is, there isn't much of a plot. You're absolutely right. And by this point, I don't care. I'm past caring. I'm enjoying every minute of this. Well, this yeah, beautiful. but then we, we get a, a huge dollop of plot. 
because oh, yes, because Darwin well, goes on it's to about time. It's oh, about yeah. time after after Min and Henry and the and the ducks and the horses and getting a puncture and everything. Because yeah, sure. luckily for us, Dial has brought up the subject of his mm -hmm. son, and he and he says yeah. his son is a strange boy who um, spends his whole life collecting the silver milk bottle tops, sacks of them, and he, he takes them away, heaven knows where, and buries them. Where goes the plot, folks? And then, for whatever reason, a, a piano turns up in this. You know, he spends his life in the Amazon, you know, couldn't he get the door open or whatever it is, and he collects yeah. stuffed pianos. Mm. And then you get the Moonlight Sonata, badly stuffed, mm. for no apparent reason. He's thoroughly enjoying, you know, this is wonderful music. You know, it's, it's crazy. But why? Why is that in there? It doesn't uh, matter. It's know. just funny. I don't know. It's lovely. And, of course, we get the... the uh, denouement at the mm -hmm. Hotel Splendide in Paris, where um, Moriarty, Moriarty and Gripmine have to settle the bill. And we have um, uh, Greenslade um, trying out one of his French accents as the waiter. <laughs> I think he abandons it quite quickly. Because you know, this is, you know, these are silver milk bottle tops, is pure BBC English you know, by this point. It was a moment, oui, monsieur. And then it just says, these are milk bottle tops. Curse foiled by Filk Muttlebops. And that's almost and that's the end. It. That's well, it. that's it, that's basically. It. I love the, the fact that Wallet at the end says, There now, that didn't hurt, did it? You know, that's just a nice moment. You know, this, this show has ended. It didn't hurt, did it? And then, of course, and he says, By the way, I played the part of the French waiter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, end thing. not much of it, not mm. much of that show makes sense, but it's a beautiful thing. It so, is. Yeah. Is it some is it one that you would play to a first time listener? No. No, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Go series six or seven, something like that. You know, when you've still got somebody like, I don't know, Peter Eason or Pat Dixon in True. charge. True. Um as I said, you know, the first one I heard was The Treasure in the Lake, and that was great. Yeah. Uh, Green Slade story, a little bit niche. Um, you know, because you know But I, I, I just about heard who John Snag was because, you know. He was still alive when I was listening to this, so you know. Yeah, but was... but the Greenslade story now is more or less it's commonly accepted as one of, if not the greatest goon show. A lot of people have that as their number one. Hmm, what a thing to think uh, to say because I mean, yeah, I know that a long time ago um, it was all about availability of shows. I think, and I think number one back in the early eighties when the GSPS did a, a survey was Histories of Pliny the Elder. Uh, yeah, which is which is a glorious show. It's great. Um, you know, it is one of the one of the finest of the lot. You know, towards the end, there's some sort of sight gag which nobody hears, but the audience yes. has absolute gales of laughter. It doesn't particularly what it matters what it is. It's probably the volcano exploding or something. It doesn't particularly matter. And that was the end of it. Mm. Um, but no, the Green Slate story. Um, I can see why. I can see why the, the, the dialogue between Wallace Greenslade and John Snag in the middle is fab. Yeah. You can hear Milligan and Seacom off laughing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Well, this is it. I've, I, you know, I, I, one of my favourite things in all of the shows is, is the crack-ups, the breakups. Um, there's an episode in the missing, the missing battleship. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's a moment when I think you know Pete Sellers gets a speaking trumpet or something like that, and he shouts "Hands up, England!" and you hear this massive amplified clunk something's fallen apart and Mike stands dropped over or something yeah, yeah. collapsed or something like that. And there's like, you know, three minutes of laughter after that or whatever it is. It's <laughs> just great stuff. Hands up England. Listen, I've really enjoyed, you know, re-listening to Silver yeah. Doubloons. It's a great show. Mm. Uh, again, you know, like like we've said, it's it's um, it's it's right at the the tail end of the the show's mm. run. So very ill-disciplined, but still some great lines, some great characterizations, and they're all having a hell of a time. Yeah, um, and I and I do think actually, you, you touched on it earlier. I do mm. think 
it's possibly Valentine Dial's best appearance. Yeah, I think possibly. so too. I think so too. Um, yes, he's he's quite obviously having fun. He's given enough to do in the third part of the show. Mm. Um, um, <laughs> most definitely, I think he makes you know he makes a good you know sinister count in that moment. It, it's great. Happy days. Thanks again to Graham. Uh, I'll be back next week with uh, an episode, this time focusing on Harry Seacombe. It's been quite uh, heavily spike-focused, I would say, on this show for the last six weeks or so. Uh, Yeah, so there'll be a special show about Harry next time, uh, so please look out for that. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a fan of British comedy in general, and you may be interested in a podcast which takes a, a deep dive into... British sitcoms of the last 30, 40 years or so. And uh, if so, you may be interested in this podcast. Hey, sitcom fans, it's time to check out the hastily scribbled note on the mantelpiece and warm up your vocal cords for one of the most high-pitched theme tunes of all time. Because here at the Sitcom Archive Deep Dive Overdrive, we're now deep diving the 80s John Sullivan classic, Dear John. Dear John. Yes, fresh from deep diving every episode made of The Good Life and Faulty Towers, we've skipped forward to the 1980s to take a closer look at Jilted John and his gang of fellow divorced misfits at the One to One Club. A sitcom expertly crafted by John Sullivan, the ensemble of quirky characters includes the feisty but frigid Kate, monotonous motorcycle combination rider Ralph, and the infamous man about town Kirk St. Moritz. And we get to attempt a good old poke around the ins and outs of their sex lives with club leader Louise, yeah? There's more to John than his bedsit lifestyle. So if you fancy a trip down memory lane, bag see your front row seat at the one-to-one club by visiting sado.club or subscribing to the Sado podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So, uh, yeah, if you fancy uh, taking a listen to, to those guys, please check them out in the usual places. Uh, I'll be back next time, as I say, with Harry and a uh, special guest. And until then, take care. See you soon. Bye.